Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Comics Collective, the weekly podcast where we read and discuss a collection of comic books or a graphic novel, and sometimes, if we feel like it, we recommend the 10 comics you should be picking up this new comic book day. Not gonna lie, look in the analytics, most of you dip out before that happens. Like, like clockwork, it drops when that happens, and so we might stop doing it. I don't know. I'm your host, Alice. <laughs> I'm Alexis. And I'm Anne. You know what that means? That just means everyone's here for Lexi. And as soon as Lexi's gone, they just dip. They're done. Yeah, we all leave at the same time. I definitely mentally out. check out. I definitely mentally check out at that point. Oh. oh. See, I've, I've been in all this work focusing. I definitely think about the top 10 comics of the week every time we do this show. I'm definitely not doing it off the top of my head every time. It's fine. Ah. Uh, ah. Uh, uh. Anyway, uh-huh. for today's episode... <laughs> We are going to be doing everything in our power to not talk about Lock and Key Volumes 4 through 6. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, I've got some thoughts. Uh, their names are Anne and Lexi. There's some great oh, little thoughts. Oh, okay. Cool. Great little, little comic thoughts here on the pod. Um, but yeah, welcome to episode part two of our Lock and Key discussion. Last month, we talked about part one. If you missed mm-hmm. that, Go back and find out what we thought then, and then come back here, find out what we think now. Welcome back, everyone that went and listened to that episode as a refresher. <laughs> um, thank you so much for pushing pause and returning fully soaked in all that goodness. You know, you're marinated well, you're ready to talk about your problematic fave, Lock and Key, part two. Problematic, to say the least. <sighs> You're all going to find out as well. This podcast... I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mm. we, we will get to all that, though. The lovely Anne, the true spine of this podcast, made true. us a script this week, everybody. <laughs> so when this podcast she gets She gave us a, a backbone, finally. <laughs> when it's just like a nice crisp apple, mm-hmm. you know, like, man, there hasn't been a two-and-a-half-minute rant by Dallas about random shit in this right off of the bat. You'll be like, ah, thanks, Anne. Thanks, Anne, for making sure everyone that's not Dallas can talk. You're welcome. Straight to jail. Straight to jail. All right. So, first thing on the docket, I would love to recap a little bit where we left off, okay? So, for anybody that is unfamiliar or just too lazy to remember, Lock and Key is the story of the Lock Kids. There's Big Hefty, uh, Little Gothy, and Bodie. And they all moved they all moved to Lovecraft, Massachusetts, which was very subtly named. Much like the rest of this book, it's very underhanded. Um, it likes to let you, the reader, figure out what it's talking about. <laughs> Um, and they move into this big mansion that, again, I don't know if you're going to catch this. It's called Key House. Uh, and in Key House, there are a number of keys. And the Locke family uses the keys from Key House to unlock magic powers with keys. And so anyway, um, all these white kids, they take these keys and they perpetuate violence against women, children, and minorities for... Six straight volumes. Uh, volume one, there's a serial killer incel who um, 
he does stuff that is not cool, but then he gets killed for it. So justice, I guess. Volume two, they find out about more about the magic keys, less about serial killers. It really seems like Joe Hill at this point was like, damn, I really do just be doing what my dad always does. Time to get creative. And then he's like, let's use some keys, takes some little people out of Gothi's head, and Big Chongus, her big brother, is like, I don't know if that's a good idea, because I'm the father figure. And Bodhi's like, fuck it, gotta go find some more keys. Do-do-do-do-do-do. Snooch. And he's truly the only character I care about in the story. I'm not gonna lie. Every time Bodhi is in the lead, I'm like, oh, it's a pretty good comic. Pretty whimsical. I love this. Every time little Gothy is in the front, I'm like, man, there's some melodrama here. And uh, I don't truly know what this story is about right now. And every time that motherfucker that looks like me is in the lead, I'm like, what kind of male power fantasy is happening in this book? I truly, why is this a Nickelback song? Why does he have a leather jacket on a motorcycle with the ghost of his hot girlfriend on the back, like, yeah, daddy. Why is that happening in this book all the time? Hey, that is the um, literal very end. You need to stop. That's my part. All right, <laughs> so anyway, jumping ahead. Anyway, popping back Cut to off. volumes one through three. Uh, some highlight moments are the use of the giant key. It's very fun. Um, we also find out, surprise, that uh, there's a slippery woman who comes out of a well. And the slippery woman becomes a slippery man with a lip piercing. And then, with their slippery designs, want to unlock the Lovecraft butthole where all of the Lovecraft monsters live down in the wet caves. Um, And to do this, they need the Omega Key. And the Omega Key is very subtly shaped like an Omega symbol and made of black metal. And it gets hidden in the head of Beef Man. And that's where we leave off after volumes one through three. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, You don't have to go read Lock and Key volume one through three now. You're aware of what happens. Uh, Please like and and subscribe. Uh, Leave a comment. (laughs) Thank you, Cops Explained. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Holy hell. Okay. Well, guess it's my turn then to piece together that shit show um so tell, tell me i'm wrong tell me i'm wrong okay first of all they have names every single one of them every single one of those people yeah, have names exactly yeah. beefcake gothy slippy woman and Bodhi. slippy woman <laughs> yeah there's not dallas not Anne, and the other one who must be lexi i guess apparently i'm, apparently I'm Bodhi. everybody Alexis leaves when Bodhi. i'm not here so <laughs> honestly uh i, I can't interrupt you Give the nice little synopsis of what we read this time. Put yourself on mute. Get out of here. All right. So my next part is I get to kind of give a rundown or a little bit of a blurb about the volumes that we read four through six. And I will say spoilers. Everybody, if you weren't spoiled already by Dallas's rundown of the first part, probably should leave unless it makes absolutely no sense like it did to the rest of us. But we... (laughs) Um, We get to see the three Locke siblings, which is named Tyler, Kinsey, and Bodie. Dallas is Tyler, Anne is Kinsey, and apparently I am Bodie. You're you're actually that little sparrow. (laughs) You're one of the sparrows. No, no, one of the other ones. 
the dead one? <laughs> no, you're actually that mean girlfriend that says those horrible things written in the past. That's who you are. Oh, the dead one? <laughs> yeah, the one that calls everyone slurs and then dies. <gasps> Anne is muted, so is all muted of her... very angry. <laughs> all of her rantings. I was going to say, with the female characters in this book, you don't have a lot of other options besides just the dead one. Well, so dead one. that's why I'm comfortable being Kinsey. Uh, this, co- this comic is actually called Lock and Fridging. Um, Hell. We'll get to that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I interrupted. That's okay. But um, so I'll give a little. I did have to go back and review volume four because I read it directly after our last episode. So I had to go and refresh myself. And I will say with the hindsight of it at the time, I was really, really loving it. Going great. It was fantastic. Then I went back and reviewed it and I was like, what the fuck was I on? (laughs) What kind of drugs? What? Uh, Literally this part, we... I mean, and I have a, a slight problem with this. I feel like right off the bat, Kinsey and Bodie take it upon themselves to go and visit one of their dad's friends in her little sad mental asylum that they put her in. And they've taken it upon themselves to use, I don't know the name of the key, but it's a key that it's lets you change. It's a very special change. episode key. It's yep. a very special episode key. It's problematic to say the least. And they change them. They change their ethnicities. They change from white children to black children to go and visit this woman in prison. Or not prison, mental prison. Um, <laughs> because all of her brain has been scrambled. But um, they go and visit her. And during this time, the scary, slippery woman slash man that Dallas has introduced us to named Dutch or Luke or Zach. He has many names. Dutch, he's got a plan. I have a plan. But murder Dutch everyone. Dutch Arthur Morgan. My name is Dutch and I have a plan. That's for all you Red Dead Redemption fans out there. Back to Alexis in the studio. We need to just delete him off this podcast. Get rid of him. We almost recorded without you. But... Yeah, so we see this part where they go in, basically terrorize this poor woman. She sees Dutch. Dutch murders people in front of her. But then he, of course, uses the door key to escape. So the nurse lady sees this, sees Kinsey, but at the time, young black woman, Kinsey. And they're just like, we cut to them watching it on TV being like, we have these menace children on suspect like be a lookout for them and i just remember being like this was very poor taste very poor taste read the room bad bad opinions here (laughs) oh no but that that was my first takeaway from that first volume but they um, solved racism alexis i don't know what your problem is they solved racism all the way back in lock and key volume four it's cured they added more rice to the bucket okay (laughs) made it worse I don't even know what that means. Made it heavier. Made the bucket heavier. You know what? Don't, obviously, don't obviously, that's is what. That, is that a is saying? That one of those Western sayings that I'm just missing out here. What kind, of, ho- what kind of hokey pokey nonsense was that? <laughs> oh, don't bully me. But says add some rice to the bucket. Shut up! What does that even mean? How? When was the last time you were carrying rice in a bucket? And then someone was like, here's a spoonful of rice. And you were like, not another spoonful of rice. Dallas, you're adding so much rice to the bucket right now. I need you to calm down. (laughs) And you are the rice in the bucket. (laughs) 
I am the bucket because I have to carry all the your bullshit rice. Carry our shit. Lock and key is the rice in our bucket. That's the new saying. Yeah, so some real rice in the bucket that is. Hey, shut up. Anyway, back to my synopsis of Volume Four. It's where hits shit hits the fan, basically, just to say the least. It's where hit it all goes wrong. Dutch starts killing people. Everybody goes missing. Dutch steals Bodhi's body, and so he's now become Tiny Bodhi, which is evil, evil Bodhi. And we are put into, I'll leave that one open for discussion for later. We'll add on it later. But volume five, we see, they all like blur together what just happened, what happened in five. Um, <laughs> I read all of them in one go this morning, so we gotta, we're going with it. it. I knew it was going to happen. Dude, and that's my whole tagline. Tiny <laughs> criminal. Tiny criminal. I am not small. I am not a small person. Till I stand by all of our family members and then I am. Smallest criminal. Yeah. But. Oh, oh, volume five is when we go in the past. I forgot about that. Yes. Yes. Okay. So we actually get pushed into the past to see. Kind of how it all started and like the background of the Omega key and the spooky Omega door that Dallas called a butthole. Um, and we get to see the spooky, scary demons that come out and possess people from behind that door, which is horrifying. Um, and we get sent back to like the 1700s to see that whole mess. Um, and yeah, we get to kind of see the beginning of the Locke family, and then we also get to see um, our current Locke children. We get to see their father, their origin story with how that friend group went down, that disaster, how the spooky Dutch was created, what happened with that. Um, and that's kind of the whole lump of the fifth volume. We just get to go in-depth more with that. We see those different characters and what kind of brought them to this point of everything going down a shithole so that's and we see at the very end of that volume them pulling out the omega key and handing it to evil Bodhi. i just remember watching that and being like oh no they don't know they don't know that dutch is in Bodhi's body and they literally just handed in the omega key after he spent the entire volume trying to fish for where it was out of their brain and they're like oh Bodhi." Just go away. You're too little. <laughs> but, yeah, so we, that's that whole volume. We just get the background, kind of the lead up to the finale, I guess you could say. Um, they all get their heart broken. They're all sad. They're all at their lowest point. All their boyfriends and girlfriends dumped them. And we jump into the final volume where evil Bodhi has his plan to open the Omega door. And we have basically, Oh, and also there's a Carrie movie reference with the prom and the blood that made me laugh out loud when I watched it, when I read it, I guess. Look dad, I can do your things. Yep. Yep. I was like, Oh, that was weird, but okay. It's I love ominous. That, like, none of the kids in it reacted at all yeah. to it. It's just yeah. like the most awkward scene ever. I'm like, yeah, that's about how it felt for us. Yeah, too. with Scott, I was like, yeah, no, no, no one laughed. <laughs> I liked what I liked when Quentin Quire showed up to prom in his dress and got that, blood covered all over him. That will be a discussion for later. That is, <laughs> this character is something. Ye oldie Quentin Quire. Heavens, oh heavens, <laughs> fired. Dallas is fired. 
But um, so yeah, we see there they all go to prom. They're having a good time. Big fat meathead has a weird sex scene with his girlfriend in a park, which was weird to say the least. I mean, I thought it was empowering to both women and the the reader. There is um, nothing more sexually empowering than taking off your dress at the middle of the high school prom and burning it in the parking lot and then fucking your boyfriend. Dancing after you cheated in on your him. after dancing you cheated on in him. your underpants in the bar, the feminine urge so romantic the feminine <laughs> urge to dance to in your dance underpants in your underpants with your boyfriend in the park and then because he has an ugly t-shirt on say you better take that off nothing worse than a hot guy wearing a bad t-shirt and you can hey, say the- thanks gay uncle for the advice say, about if- wearing bad shirts to get laid if the gay says it's okay then we can go with it truly Honestly, I don't see what you guys' problem is with this book. I really think it nailed the tone. Um, it had a gay main character. It had tons of women in it. I don't know what your complaints are. <laughs> Shut up, Twitter. Die. <laughs> Lexi, take us away. Take us to the end of this. Oh, but we kind of wrap it all up with this big scene of Bodhi just raining terror on all of these teenagers in a cave. He just fucks everybody down is like yep we're all gonna die it's gonna be great come on everyone let's lose like 60 kids in a cave and just play it off like it's fine and so he's got the scary shadow key crown like he's got all these minions and basically is just sacrificing all of these kids into the demons with the omega door and so they're all like killing each other and it's big bloodbath mess and I love the part where our sweet little baby Rufus comes back to save the day. I loved that part. I was like, oh, Rufus, he had to escape (laughs) to come and be a little military man and save everyone. But um, there was a lot. There's a there's a lot to unpack in that in that final volume, to say the least. And I feel like everyone has something to say because they're all wiggling, very excited with something to say. But um, yeah. I'll leave it at that so we can expand a little bit upon it. Yeah, this whole thing, it's hard, this part especially, because we're not just, even though this part is specifically over these last three volumes, we have to kind of analyze the story as a whole, because this is one of the first series we've read all the way through. So having that unique perspective, there's so much that I feel like I want to touch on, but also so much more that I wish the series had touched on, if that makes sense. Like, we get to the end of this, and there's parts of it, like, Dallas, you described it as, like, an abusive relationship with this book, and I think that's about right, because there's a lot of things this book does right, and a lot of things I enjoyed, but, like, small moments, but a lot of the bigger things, I think, is where it falls falls flat, because there's a lot of themes that just kind of get lost along the way, a lot of things introduced for the maybe one or two issues that just kind of vanish or don't really mean anything especially with the race key which is one of the things we'll talk about when we get to volume four specifically because like there's a theme that we talked about there but it's a theme that shows up for exactly this issue and then never again not before not after and just um like we were talking a little bit before about how mean-spirited a lot of this feels and there's a line that stories like this have to walk horror stories especially where there's the how well you have to balance character versus how well you have to balance that shock factor, the actual atmosphere and mood of the story. And you have to make deaths matter. Deaths feel important to either the theme or the characters. And a lot of time in this, I feel like that's just lost. 
and it kind of undercuts the series as a whole, I think, because there's things in this that should have play, played out differently, I think. So overall, this conclusion just left me feeling like a mixed bag. There's like um, just talking about the last page for one second where um, he hugs his ghost dad. That whole conversation, that's really good. I thought there was some really good storytelling, but it's just undercut by so much bad things that happen for just the sake of bad things happening before. Like you can't have this really good emotional payoff at the end when like all the stuff that came before it just felt like it was there for shock value. Like you're trying to claim a reward that you haven't earned, if that makes sense. And I'm not sure how you all feel about the conclusion of this to the story, but I, I wish that more had happened, if that makes sense. It's just themes didn't line up or didn't go where I hoped they would, which I think is one of the biggest, biggest problems here. I think the book really hit its stride from like the second half mm-hmm. of volume four through like the first half of volume six, where I was like, I was like flipping through pages and I was like, I have to know what's going on. Um, but I really think for me, this book boils down to a desire to use violence and shock instead of good storytelling mm-hmm. to sell the horror, to sell the stakes. Exactly. Um, which, yeah, it's just reiterating what Anne said, but this book wants to be Lovecraftian horror. I love Lovecraftian horror. I think the one thing that Joe Hill got right with Lovecraftian horror is how poorly it treats minorities and women. Um, <laughs> I'm just, just teasing. Uh, I, but knew not really. I knew it was coming. But not really. Like, we're all complaining about the race key. Like, we haven't read a single Lovecraft story. Um the man was a racist, in case you didn't know. Just a little bit. Just a little. The best part about a Lovecraft story is that you're just reading along. You're like, this is pretty nice. He mm-hmm. hasn't really brought up anything that makes me go, what the fuck, in a while. And then he'll just be like, ah, and by the way, and then say the most awful thing you have read all week. And you're like, I have right-wing relatives on Facebook. How did you beat uh, them? <laughs> I was going to say, Lovecraft is that uncle at Thanksgiving. That's, anyways, continue. Um, But Lock and Key really wanted to be a Lovecraft horror book Mm -hmm. that I felt like realized it couldn't scare us with cosmic horror. It couldn't scare us with eldritch horror. Um, And so then it would just fall back on serial killer, blood and guts, hyper-violence terror when they couldn't sell the concept. And that's really what it was for me that messed up this book, you know? And I actually, I will die on this hill. I think Junji Ito is the only person that can convincingly do eldritch horror in a visual medium. I think that eldritch horror lives best in just written accounts. I think there's a reason there hasn't been very many great Lovecraft adaptations because the whole idea is that you can't get it it's bigger than you are it's scarier than you are um and so those stories really work and the second you add a visual medium to it it takes it away you know that creeping door with all the eyes and everything around it it was a cool design but i wasn't scared of it but like the idea of this door to another world where things like will possess you and suck you in and that's a scary concept that would work really well in prose but in a comic medium it ends up not working very well. And I think they realized that. And so then they just had it turn into a slasher. And I did not care. 
for that tonal shift. And I think that's at the heart of, of what I don't like about this book, is it chooses to be mean and violent to, to women and to, like, to everybody that isn't the dude that looks just like me. Mm-hmm. They're like, we're going to be so mean to all of these people for shock value. And mm-hmm. that undercuts any nice things I have to say about this book. Right. You know? Lexi, what did you think about this conclusion to the series as a whole? I think, kind of to follow like what Dallas said, I feel like about until halfway with volume six, like I was scrolling through it, like, oh my goodness, there's so much going on. Like we're at the peak of what evil Bodie is doing. And like, I just feel like as soon as it like was started to wrap itself up, I was like, oh, this is just like, I don't know. It just was so it left like a bad taste in my mouth, if that makes sense. Like, it just was like, oh, okay, well, that's weird. Like, just so many people died, so many, like, unnecessary things happened with it. I don't know. I was hopeful because I kind of, I did, I, this is technically my pick because we did the last one for me, and I will admit I liked the first half better. But I don't know if that's just because I, I don't want to say, like, I was naive, but I mean, because it was a month ago. But, like, I feel like this just, it just kept going down. It just kept going down. And we kind of wanted, like, with more being specific to volume four, like, kind of how we want to talk about each of them differently. Like, there's just this one, the one part where Dutch snaps and like goes on his rampage and when he starts attacking everyone like the scene where what he did to ellie just made me like sick like literally sick to my stomach and i was like i don't want to read this anymore like it just was so terrible and then the part with like rufus his her daughter her son it just made me so sad and i was like that was so unnecessary that's not scary that's just vile and it just, I feel like the rest of the run kind of did the same thing for me. Like, it just wasn't, it wasn't scary. It was just icky. <laughs> just icky. Well, it just, like, that specific scene with Ellie and Rufus, huge turnoff for me as well yeah. from the book. I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I ever quite forgave the book for that. I agree. And then, like, again at the end with, like, the implications of what happened to their mom with, like, like to get her out of the story basically Mm -hmm. and then like the kids finding her being so mad like seeing her in this disarray like i did not like that i i thought it was lazy sloppy writing i thought it was mean Mm -hmm. i thought it it was a violation on page yes i hated it Mm -hmm. i hated seeing it i hate that there really was no character to the mom for all six volumes Mm -hmm. and I, I wanted to talk about it when we get to volume six, but I have to bring it up now. The way they play it off where it's like Bodie helps her back up, like his spirit helps her back up. He's like, actually, no, you had the strength in you the whole time. I'm like, no, you're literally helping her right now. This undercuts the entire theme you're trying mm-hmm. to portray right now. If Bodie had nothing to do with it, then maybe. Then maybe they could have justified that. But it's very, very obvious that Bodie is the person helping her, helping her up. There was no character from within there that's the way i read it at least that was that was what really sunk that moment for me i also just like the amount of times that like the central purpose of a female character was to be sobbing 
or to be like I feel like Kinsey's whole arc was like I'm gonna be a cold bitch for like the middle four arcs because I took out these bits that are so womanly of me and then I'm going to like put them back in as like this triumphant moment and then the like the villain is like I liked you better when you weren't in this way and it's supposed to be like no villain now she's cool but like the story doesn't sell that the story she literally like her option then becomes like i'm gonna cry all the time and i'm not gonna be a major character anymore so there's parts of that um character arc that i really appreciated but again it's one of those things that gets undercut by so many unnecessary losses towards the end that just kind of didn't need to happen like when they take away her other two friends um when they take away quentin choir and his girlfriend just to give like her and Jamal more grief. It's like they they already have plenty. They're all their friends are dying right now. This was it's just so much that happens repeated over and over again. It's just repeated misery for the sake of repeated misery. Yeah, exactly. And they even say like at the end there's this line where it's like 109 kids went into the cave and like 58 came out. I was like, "Holy shit, like that's so many people in this town that's like a whole senior class dead that they like they don't need to just rub the salt in the wounds you know with like the specific friends like that's just a terrible thing as a whole like it just seemed so calloused and like oh okay my heavens like just let it just let it go at this point like just stop adding more to what's already going on if that makes sense like it, it, it's a good thought and a good story at its base level if that makes sense like mm-hmm. it was a good idea but just oh yeah very poorly executed and so you to play devil's advocate there is something to be said for horror where innocent people are the targets like there's definitely something like an earned death in stories where it's like we like to see bad things happen to bad people we like to see these awful things happen to people when it fulfills their plot but real life isn't always like that right and that's in a good horror story you can make that work you can make it work with bad things happen to innocent people but it has to play into that theme and the deaths in this book i feel don't play into that and that's that's where that's where the disconnect happens and it's i feel like i'm being the same point over and over again but there's just such an unwillingness to connect the visceral nature of the story with the underlying um, threads that have been going from the beginning. This book wants to be two separate things at the same time, and it can't agree on what it wants to be. So at the end, we just kind of get a half, half-hearted send-off to something that feels like two different stories crammed together, in my opinion. And what's so sad to me is I really liked one of those stories. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I Seriously. really like one half of this book. There's a really special coming-of-age story inside the story. It's just such a shame that it's not the focus of the story. It's also, it's just hard for me that, like, the one character that I feel like has a consistent arc is Tyler. Mm-hmm. Like, the one character that I can't really point to anything that's like, err, is right. with Tyler. Sometimes I'm like, err, about how people act around him, you know? Mm-hmm. But I just... This book is such an interesting artifact to me of a period in comics, right? I have often said, I think that were I to read Why the Last Man for the first time right now, I probably wouldn't like it very much. But I read it forever ago, you know, Mm -hmm. when these things weren't getting talked about. And so 
it kept being confusing to me when I was reading about how like every volume of this book was nominated for Eisner's. It was people love this book. People like people on Twitter when I'm like, I don't like this book. They're like, what are you even talking about? Like this book rules. And I'm just so surprised until I remember like, oh, this this wasn't seen as like icky even five years mm -hmm. ago. You know, we weren't having these conversations five years ago. Mm -hmm. about books like this and yeah i don't know i just mm -hmm. it's not not my fave um do we yeah. want to talk about volume four a little less absolutely let's get into the nitty-gritty okay i i want to pull up like it actually on my phone so i can just mm -hmm. kind of walk through it lightly exactly. i guess damn. um i know oh the the damn music key that <laughs> that had such a good good idea but just makes me so sad that it was so evil <laughs> oh but i just thought it, another like kind of cute funny part i mean also this part's led by bodhi so are we surprised but the sparrows that was a and how they're driven it, they're drawn in like calvin and hobbs mm -hmm. type was so i was good. like oh this is so cute or so even how every page was four panels like a yeah. calvin and hobbs comic mm -hmm. yeah sorry, i no, no, it's just it's it was just so fun. Like I loved it, and that's so, the irony of it is like, see, it had parts that were so good and so cute, where little Bodhi just jumps into a sparrow's body and he goes through this adventure, and it's with his little birdie friends, and it's like paralleled with Dutch doing the same thing with a wolf, and it's just kind of ruins the whole thing i'm like just let Bodie have his little happy birdie day okay just let him go fly around you don't need to eat his friends thank you oh I see that's like heartbreaking that's one of the things i think really worked for me i i like i liked volume four a lot because i feel like there's a lot of issues there that really felt like joe hill for the first time instead of trying to make this like a long-form novel in comic form actually embraced just making comics each mm -hmm. issue kind of had its own little flavor and, like, this issue especially was the one where I was like, okay, they're actually embracing this medium, trying to represent things in a different way. I love seeing the perspective of the Calvin and Hobbes story from, like, you know, Bodhi's eyes versus – I actually liked seeing the realism parts of it because it just is what the story should have been. It's a lot of really wholesome moments, a lot of, like, actually coming of age and seeing things through children's eyes because, you know, that's one of the themes is only the children can see the magic. So I liked getting that perspective of the story. But it's, it's not all the issues touch on the best things, which we'll get to when we get to the race key issue. It's just, this is where I wish the comic stayed. I wish we'd kept that ingenuity through the whole thing. I think the February issue where they do like each panel as a different day was also a really cool one. Mm -hmm. It was. That I was do think cool. it's a little indicative of my issue with this story, though, as it seems like there's a desire to rush past the fun and adventurous bits. Oh yeah. To get to the vile bits. <laughs> See, that's the thing. We get a lot of keys introduced in this volume, but they're introduced in like a panel and not explained until you get to like the key descriptions at the very end of the volume. Yeah, like the teddy bear massacre massacre. Would love to know what that's all about. Them yeah. fighting millions of teddy bears. I'm like, okay. <laughs> why does that not have its own issue? Mm -hmm. Right. But well, it's, it's interesting because uh future Dallas in next week's episode really praised uh klaus for mm -hmm. that kind of issue but in lock and key it felt a little 
a little bit like why isn't this the whole story mm-hmm. why why is this isolated to this single mm-hmm. issue I don't feel like I need to see so much angst I'd love to see a little <laughs> bit of I'd love to root for these kids a little bit you know mm-hmm. just let them be happy for once <laughs> just for like five minutes but right after the Sparrow little story, we go, we jump right into the race key and we see mm-hmm. that story. So it kind of starts out with the kids walking down the street and they pass a, like a aid nurse rolling an old woman down the street in a wheelchair. And we are introduced to Mrs. Voss or Aaron Voss, who is a character from the original group of teenagers so these lock kids dad's really good friend Erin and we kind of get this scene with her where she just keeps screaming over and over white white and at the time it seems very like oh like they kind of brush it off as like oh she's like she's crazy she's kind of like stuck in this time where they kind of put it off as like she's being racist but at the we later find out that that's not even close to what's going on in her mind. Um, so Kinsey, our evil little gremlin of anger, has taken it upon herself to she really wants to talk to Aaron Voss about what's going on. She wants to pick her brain. She wants to understand. But they take it as she's not going to talk to us because we're little white kids so they take this race key and they change their race they switch themselves to be black children and they go into the mental mental institution to try and talk to her and I also like the one scene and it just like makes me so sad I was like the one scene of Bodhi reading the books to the other um, residents of that institution just made me so sad. I was like, look how cute he is. He's just doing good. He's just went in there to do good. And Kinsey went in there to raise hell. Like, it just made me so sad. And we kind of get another, like, foil few pages with that where we see Dutch having used the um, gender key to switch his gender to have, to be a female. And, um, basically take advantage of the um i guess the maintenance workers like the upkeepers of the institution to get them to send him a picture of Aaron's door and i remember reading that and i was like oh no he is going to use the door key to go and get her to attack her and so we get this like suspenseful moment where Kinsey and Dutch are technically in the same room together but Kinsey can't see him, and um, he had just walked through the door and murdered one of the workers that he had talked to before, and he was coming for Aaron. And so she opens, um, Kinsey opens Aaron's mind to see what's going on in there, and it's white, just plain nothing. And it has, uh, is his name Reginald? Did I just make that up? What's their dad's name? Not Reginald, but we're I know Mr. Reginald. Chungus. So anyway, big meaty. And yeah, big meaty. meaty. I don't know his name. His name is written along the white walls inside of Aaron's mind, and it's just so eerie because all she knows is white, and that's why she keeps saying it over and over and over again because she literally has no idea what's going on. And 
then she also, Kinsey also sees a faceless figure with a knife. And so she's like, whoa, what's going on? And she like whirls around and sees these murdered bodies in this room. And she like runs out screaming. That's when the nurse comes in and gets the image of the the black girl that was terrorizing this poor woman. And it just like is so gross. And we see later they're watching the news and it has like a police sketch of Kinsey and it just, I just remember seeing it. And I was like, oh, that's just so, ugh. Why, why did that have to be a thing? Why could that, why was that a storyline at all? Why is that even a thought that they did? It just was so poorly, mm-hmm. it was just in poor taste. And I just hated it. <laughs> Say, this is one of the issues where it's like thinking, like, I want to focus on like the good things first and then get into the negatives. But this is the, one of the only issues in the thing. I can't think of a good thing to say about it because just this is the reading books. It's just Bodhi reading books. This is an issue where I felt like talking about how they tried to embrace that comic book nature of it. This reminded me a lot of like what Neil Gaiman did with Sandman, where there comes a point where eventually each issue just kind of acts as its own standalone with its own standalone theme, its own standalone issues, its own standalone plot. And Sandman gets good. You mean and Sandman gets good. That's the difference. Is this just instead of delivering an actual thought out message. It's just kind of like the rest of it, like the rest of the very subtle, very obviously missed things like (laughs) Dallas brought up earlier, just comes over very ham fisted because it's a theme that never showed up before in the book. Like if I'm not mistaken, this is the first time like racial tensions or discriminations are mentioned in any way, shape or form in the book. Mm -hmm. So I remember just from the start of the issue, just from them talking about like Obama, I'm the, I'm like, this kind of came out of nowhere. I wonder what's going to happen in this issue. And it just didn't go anywhere meaningful with it, if that makes sense. It, mm-hmm. It's a theme that feels half-hearted because it's abandoned the moment this page, the moment the last page in the story runs. And it also is so questionable on most cases to have a key that changes someone's race and has these kids basically running around in what feels like blackface. And it's like, we're, we're three white people, so it feels like there's aspects of the story that I can't touch on, at least, you know, sincerely enough or with, you know, the right context that sto- this um, story really probably requires. So it's hard for me to truly speak on it, but it just it made me feel uncomfortable. It's like you need the best execution in the world to make the story land. And it just did not happen. It, it wanted to, but it did not. Writing isn't like the little engine that could. You can't make it happen just by wanting it enough. You have to follow through. Yeah, it feels like Joe Hill really wanted to say something about the racism that he saw around him in New England. Um, It came up a couple times, like, later in the book with the relationship between Aaron and, like, the Lock kid's dad, where there was a line that really, like, stuck out to me. It was like, he might be liberal, but, like, he's never going to be with like a black girl you know it's like this seems like something that bothers joe hill it seems like joe hill sees racism in new england that isn't acknowledged but like this so is not joe hill's story to tell first and this is so not the way to tell that story this feels like there's a very famous issue where lois lane switches her race in like the 1950s and learns about racism you know and it's aged like milk. 
And so it's just shocking to see that same concept dug back up in like 2009, 2010, you know? And say, how did. I know sometimes we like to be like, it was a different time, but like, it wasn't that different of a time. Like, I, I would have known in 2010 that this was a weird issue, you know? So, certainly not a favorite. In an otherwise pretty AOK volume, definitely a low point. Yeah, that's for sure. What what else do we like in volume four though? Um well we kind of see like the downfall of all of the kids um relationships, if that makes sense. Like we see Tyler going through his own shit, like in the next little issue. Um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, who? Tyler, big meathead. No. Oh, big meaty. Okay. Big meaty. Okay. No, medium meaty. Meaty, not medium. big meaty. Is big he uh, is he bearded meaty yet? <laughs> no. No. He's like, excuse me, big meaty is my father. Yeah, yeah, big uh, meaty is dad. Me. His name is Rendell. That's his name, not Reginald. <laughs> Close enough. Just make him oh sound more fancy. But um, yeah, so we see like the downfall of all of these kids' relationships that they have built since moving. Um. Like, we see Kinsey and Zach slash Dutch slash scary woman break up, and, like, he goes crazy, and then, like, the girlfriend cheats on medium meaty, and it's just, like, they all hate each other. And this is also the same issue where we get those panels of, like, them discovering the different keys. And my favorite one is just, like, absolute ripped Bodie. Do you remember that? Like, look at him. It's a, it's a hilarious <laughs> panel. The strength key is something else. Yeah, it's a it moment, makes, baby. It makes me laugh. A but, moment um, in time. Yeah, so this whole issue, like, they're ruining their relationships. Like, Scott and Jamal start hating each other. And, like, just, it just is a mess. Everyone's hitting rock bottom so that this, they can, quote, unquote, be built back up, which doesn't kind happen. kind of feels like the goblet of fire when everyone starts to hate each other for yes. like no real reason and you're like why is this happening like what's who going is on this, who mm-hmm. is this for it's it's crazy because i feel like this is the first character development we've gotten for a lot of these characters since mm-hmm. they were introduced and it's immediately straight into the dumpster with all of them that's at least that's what it feels like especially with um um Ch- chungus's girlfriend um oh. this sexy blonde lady um, she has a. I think, I think her name is T and I think her name is T and A actually. Oh, Tina, right. Jordan. Tina or uh, T and A. What's her name, Lexi? Jordan. Jordan. She's the worst. Can I just say that I hate her? I've hated her the whole time. Can I just say I think Joe Hill writes her poorly. I think she's probably a nice woman. <laughs> In real life, she's probably really cool. She's probably um, really can I talk nice. about like the one reference we get to the um. One X-Men issue, the Professor Xavier is a jerk. Oh my gosh, yes. yes. I'm like, I oh, was this like... is such a cool reference. Too bad she's dropping a slur during it. That's fun. Thanks. Gross. I it's feel like, like that's a good way to sum up this book in general. It's like... You had something and you ruined you, it. Uh, you dropped more slurs than Kitty Pride in the 80s, It's Joe Hill. Which is a weird thing, because like talking about literature if you're trying to tell a point with it then yes i think there's a time and place where these are appropriate to use in a story and joe hill definitely goes for that that he 
definitely takes that after his father, who does a really good job with it most times. But doing it here, where there's an obvious parody happening to a, a comic that is definitely not on the same, like, sincerity level that you're looking for here, just kind of, it's two clashing ideals. It's, you expect me to take this line seriously, but at the same time, you're showing me this, and it just makes it feel awkward. Like, this is not something I expect to see with a fun little parody, you know? It kind of undercuts the, like, weight the moment should have. It makes me unable to, like, accept that you just dropped that. <laughs> it takes me out of it. Yep. I agree. Um, so Volume 4 leaves our characters in a pretty rough spot overall. Oh, and then it makes it worse. <laughs> With the very last issue in Volume 4. It, but, remind me, is that the one where they shit hits the fan, basically? Yeah, where Rufus can see the ghost. Yes. Yeah, yes. Rufus can see the ghost, and we find out... That was actually one of the issues that had one of the cool, scary moments they really liked. I really liked the red eyes watching them from the... Oh, um, that was that was chilling. From the scope? Yeah, that was so cool. I loved that very, very much. And that's where we get the incels ghost who shows up for a little bit. Because he's a character for like an issue, and then he shows up just to die again in the last issue for real this time. Which yeah. was one of the moments where I feel like there's threads in this that just get cut short real fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this issue is, yes, like Dallas said, this is the one where literal all the shit hits the fan. Mm -hmm. Like, it's literally titled Casualties, which is so chilling to me. I remember opening it and I was like, oh no. Because a little bit of background, our sweet little baby Rufus, he talks like he is a little army guy, which I think is so cute. Like, I love love Rufus's character. I wish that they were nicer to him. (laughs) He just is so sweet and so gentle. And we get this issue where he can see the spirits in in the house, like with the spirit door, how you can leave your body. Um, we see we see that and we see the serial killer spirit trying to convince Rufus to help him, to help him get rid of Dodge. And so Dodge is watching this whole thing happen with his scary red eyeballs and um he basically like scares the living daylights out of rufus which makes me so sad like he tells them he's like if you say anything to these kids about what that told like what you were just told like i will take your mom away and she will you will never see her again and i was like oh, leave him alone like he's not gonna hurt anybody <laughs> oh say rufus is one of the few characters i feel like actually comes out fairly okay at the end of this yeah. which sucks because in the final issue casualties it's mostly talking about his mom who yeah. we talked about a little bit earlier suffers a really viscerally graphic fate in this issue yeah but rufus does come back from it because again it's one of the moments where one of the male characters actually benefits from a female character's downfall and is the one who gets stronger afterwards yeah lock and fridge lock, lock and, fridge. and fridge yep that's besides the point. Um, for I, anyone that doesn't know what fridging means, should we should we say what fridging means? Fridging is when you cause violence or death to one of your female characters to cause emotional growth in one of your male characters. It's basically sacrificing her and her well-being for the sake of another character who is male. That's it was what, it was coined by Gail Simone, right? Yep, 
in an yeah. essay about Kyle Rayner's girlfriend who uh, ended up in a fridge after yep, something. I, I believe that's actually why DC gave her a job. Word, honestly. Yeah. Gail, if you're listening to this, we love you. Come on our show. I love all of your comics, and I think you're incredibly pleasant. Oh, yeah. Sorry to interrupt it's, you, though. Oh, it's okay. This issue was one of the... There's moments in it I really like. I like the escalation here. It's one of the things Joe Hill does very well, is he, the tension in this issue alone is incredible. Like, when um, Dutch just kind of walks in and uses the music key and just kind of stands there very menacingly, because he knows he's he's like, this moment is one. I just have to say one thing, and this moment's done. And it's just very stressful. It was the one issue I was like flipping page to page. I did slow down a little bit when Ellie Whedon met her end because it was, like I said, very disturbing. But there's moments in here where I can see where Joe Hill shines. And I I appreciate that. It was really good. It was a beautifully paced comic. I just wish certain things had happened differently. And the ending where we find out he gets into Bo's body leaves you with this like really tense feeling for the last two issues of this. Because it's one of those things where evil guys and little kid and no one else knows but you it's that um dramatic irony that just really sits with you and makes you want to keep going which is good because not a lot else did i definitely the quote-unquote death of bode feels like the death of joy in this comic mm -hmm. I'm not, like, not even trying to be funny i feel like this is the point where it's like okay it's going to be heavy for the rest of the time we any hope of a Calvin and Hobbes style Sparrow story is out the window. Um, I also do think, though, going into volume five, maybe that the decision to then have the flashback that explains everything after that was wise because the story doesn't have much further to go after Bode becomes inhabited by Dodge. Mm -hmm. And so it was a it was a good time to take a break maybe and move into the flashback, which I really liked the flashback quite a bit. Yes. And that's the part I will touch up on. Cause that's where we get into volume five. All of volume five is just split into two parts. It's the calm before the storm. Cause like you said, as soon as Bode switches, this is where the final act really begins. That's where the end game starts. But we take this short little reprieve just to get all the backstory. We've kind of been, wanting since the since we first found out about the keys like what the hell is the deal with this house why do these exist and we go back in time to find out i'm just going to briefly summarize we go back in time to find out that the Locke family is actually responsible for this because during the american revolution a group of um, revolutionaries actually discovered this portal deep beneath the earth leading to this other um eldritch realm where things keep coming through and they don't know how to shut the door so to figure out a way to get it to stay shut so that the revolutionaries don't have to leave and get captured and hanged by the British. Um, one of the Locke brothers, the Locke child, makes the first lock out of this metal that these creatures create when they come through to our world. And we find out that when he makes locks and keys out of these particular special Eldritch metals, it does cool superhuman shit based on whatever he wants it to do. And... That's how the Omega key, the Omega seal came to be. And from the metal that from the other creatures that came through, he forged all the other keys as well, which really begs the question, how did he make the big wooden key? The big like giant key? Because that's that doesn't look like metal to me. That looks like wood. Anyway, that's that's besides the point. Um, that reeks then, of I had Horcruxes planned the whole time <laughs> to me. Oh, my God. It's also um. 
I can't. We also get a flashback to Rendell and his childhood when everything went wrong with Dutch and everything that happened there that messed up. Um, what was her name? Was it like Junie, the lady in the mental asylum? Erin? Erin, yes. We find out what happens to her, why all of her memories are gone. We find out who that body at the bottom of the cavern was that we saw a few volumes back. We find out why Ellie Whedon is such a mess. It's a lot of things that finally get answered that were touched on in the last three volumes. And it sets us up perfectly for the final act when Bodhi finally gets that key because um, Ty almost burns down the house. And they that's how they discovered the clock key, which they used to go back and look at the past because they can't look at the future because the clock stops at 1999, where they actually make that really funny joke about Y2K and the <laughs> night and the keys were immune from it. One of the one of the times I laughed in this and yeah. The stage is set perfectly for volume six when we get into the finale, which kind of falls a bit short. I think we've all kind of agreed on. If you want to touch on that, Dallas. Uh, For me, volume five was the high point. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew it would be. And was it the high point for you too? Or do you just know me that well? I just know know you that well. This bull crap. I honestly wasn't that big a fan of the time travel stuff. Because like I said, the end of volume four really set us up for that finale. And I feel like we had to hit the brakes to go back and do a little bit of like, okay, here's some exposition. Now let's do six issues of exposition and then we'll get back to the story that was set up at the end of volume four. So volume five wasn't the high point for me. I still think just because of the comic-y nature of volume four, I think that was still the the high point of the entire run for me, but we just peaked at different places. I think for me, I was sort of like, man, if we had just told this story, this Revolutionary War Eldritch story the whole time, mm-hmm. boy, I would have been a happier camper. <laughs> like, I would have liked the history of all the keys getting made. That's more my mm-hmm. style of story. But to each their own. Um, volume six. So, once upon a time, there was this little boy named Bodie that got a Slither Woman inside of him. And she just squickied her way inside. And then when she was there, she said, now you have evil yellow eyes. So anyway, Bodhi gets his Sith Lord eyes, like Anakin in Revenge of the Sith. Um, and he's like skulking around like, mwahaha. And he gets the shadow key, which is never, never a good choice. Anyone puts on that crown, they're like, time to do some evil shit. And so he gets a, he also kills so many people. The amount of child's play, Chucky violence that this kid does over the course of this volume is astonishing, frankly. Child breaks an entire lighthouse. Child pushes other child in front of bus. Oh my god. The worst. I forgot about that. The worst. The worst. That was a very Stephen King thing to do. <laughs> that was very Stephen King of him, oh. thinking back to the gunslinger. <laughs> when the uh, man in black pulled the same shit. He, the kings love pushing kids in front of cars. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't, frankly? Um, but anyway, so then um, Darth Bodius goes and he gets the Omega key out of his big brother's head because pff, why not, frankly? And then he has it for like four issues. And the whole time I was over here like, no, no. Why is this happening? Please, no. Please. Oh, no. Lordy, lordy. Oh, no. And then. I'm so glad there's not going to be video with this podcast. I'm disturbed. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so anyway, 
Bodhi is like, time to make myself a shadow dress. And here's my crown. And then the shadows come back out to be like, remember us? We were spoopy for the middle part of this book. And they uh, they do the spoops. They kill so many people. Just so much violence happens to everybody all of the time. A little bit of violence all of the time. And then... There's, yeah. No, you go. You go. I was going to say, the everything in the cave... Just it's just like a bitter taste at the end of something that could have been so much sweeter. I, you know the the issue where they go through and um Quentin Quire is taking the video of everyone's senior memories and he goes up to that one nerd girl and she's like I'm gonna embrace being a nerd because it makes me strong and then when she's down in the cave and she says the same thing and then instantly gets cut in fucking half. I I think that was the moment where I'm like okay it's done the we're into the everyone is going to be sacrificed because it's time to sacrifice the people thing. And it's just like moments of strength that get rewarded by violent death. And that happens several times. That happens with um crazy um sexy blonde lady too. Because she has like a moment of like strength and then jumps to her death. Yep. And mm-hmm. we see her mangled body later. Yeah, she's like, I'm going to be a better person. Anyway... Off to go be a plot device. (laughs) It's one of those, like, none of the, like, (laughs) I don't think any of the male characters make choices like that, which is like, I'm going to be strong, time to kill myself. But it happens several times with the female characters, where they're like, this is how I'm a strong character. And that was, that was the part where I'm like, this is becoming insane. This, I can't handle this. I am it was, going to become the Joker. We live in a lock and key society. <laughs> oh no. I but also the I could talk all day about how blonde crazy Jordan was written, especially that scene we talked about at outside the prom where she's like, empowerment is me stripping naked and dancing with my boyfriend outside prom because he wore a dumb shirt. Uh <sighs> I, there's a classic female move, you know? Classic female move. So, you see your girlfriend in her underpants outside of the prom. How do you approach? <laughs> is this is this for the next um session, we're gonna, the next D&D session we're going to have? Exactly, exactly. Beautiful. Yeah, like I write women any better than uh, Joe Hill does. But <laughs> just kidding, everyone. I'm trying my just best. Just kidding. He did pretty good with the bikers, but I attribute most of that to Addie. That is true. The better half. Um, And yeah, so then Bode is like, you're trapped in me dungeon. And then they're all like, we're trapped in your dungeon. And then Tyler's like, ah, one of us better have some growth in this book. And so he like has his Iron Man one moment where he's like, tink, tink. While everyone else is like, we're getting gutted in the cave. Oh, no. And then his his gunkle, um, that's a abbreviation for a gay uncle, because that is truly that man's one function in this book, is to be the gunkle. Uh, gunkle is like, and has all these lightsaber um, flashlights, and he's just gunning down these shadows, while Tyler continues to be like, I got laid, and so now it's time to save the day. Man, with empty balls, I can do anything. And so then... He goes forth having made a new key, and with this new key, he gets the awesome power to um, kill all the kids 
and therefore sanctify them. Mm -hmm. And so the day is saved by Tyler. Um, Bodie gets gat, basically, by Rufus, who comes to save the day. I I think Rufus is the one person that isn't Tyler that is treated empathetically in this book. I feel like he is seen as... Bad stuff happens to Rufus, Mm -hmm. but, like, Rufus is treated well. He's treated like a human being. I was actually really impressed with Mm-hmm. With his character. Um, he gets to come save the day. Alexis, I can see you have something to say. Oof. I love Rufus. It makes me sad that, like, his background scenes that we get when he's, like, escaping. You know, his, like, flashbacks with his mom. That makes me so sad. I'm like, oh, this mm-hmm. poor child. Just just give him a break. It poor is little guy. True. It is true. The book is mean to Rufus, but Rufus gets to save the day which made my heart happy. And then you get the epilogue where there's a good moment with Tyler and his dad. Um, Kinsey decided to be a skirt wearing girl. So that was a cool arc for her. Um, And then Bodie is a sparrow, but then a boy. Um, And also all those other kids are dead. Mm -hmm. And then Tyler has a really nice moment with his dad. And then we just get to see a door that's locked and... Mm -hmm. Frankly, I don't know what more I could have wanted out of this story. <laughs> Say, there's um, there's some things I liked. I liked because Tyler's the only character in this that had a really complete arc. I liked that his ended with the key acting the way it is, the key that he makes. It's basically him embracing the fact that, hey, bad things are going to happen to people. But sometimes you have to just let them go for them to be able to move on. And that's why even though like the key turning kills the people it separates them from the demon, but it also kills them at the same time. I thought that was still a good moment for Tyler, bad moment for everyone else. Cause they're going to die, but it's a good moment for him. Cause it teaches him like, I have to let go. I have to move on. I have to be willing to let bad things happen because they're going to happen. So I think that's the best I can say for that. Cause there's a lot of moments for the other characters that just kind of hurt. Like what's, um, we keep calling him Quentin Quire. What's his actual name? Scott. Scott. With one T. Scott. With one Scott. T. Scott. It was, it was nice that Scoot. after the key turns in him, the strength key lets him keep going for a little bit because oh. he gets to do some fun stuff. His girlfriend's not so lucky. As soon as the key turns in her, they die and have the, the nice moment together. Well, she's but a woman, Anne. Because she's a woman. She's so not she's, that strong. She has a weaker constitution, Anne. It's it's that estrogen. It's, it's the instant death disease. <laughs> I I have to I have to get used that to it. I'm just to mute himself because of how hard he's laughing. <laughs> if anything happens to me, if a light breeze blows on me now, I die. I have to. <laughs> and starts to cry metal. That's just what happens. No one tells you, but I can speak from experience. <laughs> and did do you feel your plot armor disappearing? Yeah, I I felt it disappear a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> no joke um i had to go up and help my dad and my mom flip this um base for an old shed and my dad's like okay lift in three two one i'm like oh there's the estrogen okay it's all my strength is gone oh. <laughs> there's no... i'm like good sign good news but at the same time the shed is staying right where it is yeah, anyways so this has to back. stay here to cover up some lovecraftian horror oh yeah that's what we were talking about right um can you imagine if this book was just about like the corrupting influence of this evil Lovecraft cave underneath, mm-hmm. and you got to see like the magic is fun at first, 
and it has like sort of a cartoony art style that slowly becomes like more sharp yeah, and that scary been as like the kids get to grow up and see that like there's some darkness behind it all. Yeah, that would have felt thought out. Instead of all this other shit that happened. Like it's like, did you just describe Uzumaki? Did you the Uzumakiification of lock and key? In other news, just read Uzumaki, okay? If you, you know, want... I wanted while we were talking about that, you mentioned that like Junji Ito is one of the only people who can draw these Eldritch um horrors appropriately i think part of that actually has to do with coloring i've never i wasn't impressed with the coloring in this book from issue one it just feels really flat really plain to me it's just it feels every day and i think that's the problem because you can't have that with eldritch horror i feel like if the colors are flat and plain it makes your scary horror feel flat and plain and a strength of junji ito's books is the fact that they're not colored it leaves that part up to the imagination you see the shape of these beasts of these horrors but you have to fill in the rest of it yourself and i think that when you add basic colors to it it takes all that away and you're just like oh this is just regular part of the world that looks exactly the same as everything else has except with more eyeballs and that was just i think that's one of the reasons those horrors fell flat that was very wise and oh, look, it you. wasn't it wasn't me that was talking about it color wasn't today. you i talked about color theory for once and it happens all you twitter oh. troglodytes can stfu okay this is the part um we we skipped over it because we pulled a joe hill and just forgot she existed can we talk about the mom for a second oh oh damn yeah she was here yeah <laughs> oh so um she was here to be violated yeah that's exactly what happens because for anyone who doesn't know, the mom has an occasional arc through the story. Whenever Joe Hill remembers to write her, that it actually literally mostly happens in the background. Like literally her progression happens in like one panel in volume four where they're like dumping her alcohol down the drain. And she's like, this is my decision. I've made this off panel. We shall do this now. And just her struggle with alcoholism is so brushed over that the moment that this happens, it just hits like a ton of bricks to get the mom out of the picture evil bode forces the shadows to make her drink and they also at the like same time tear her clothes, tear her clothes off, off and it's when kinsey comes home and finds her in the state it just it feels like the aftermath of an assault because that's basically what it is her personal being was violated and it was very uncomfortable to watch it was very uncomfortable to sit through and the way it's handled at the end i think we touched on it a bit earlier where i just the way bode was the one who got her through it makes zero sense to me it's another case where it's the male character enabling the female character to have an arc kind of it's just i i hated it what did you think lexi it yeah kind of what you said like it just made me feel like i had watched something like violating of this Mm -hmm. poor woman and i was like i hate that like, there was literally no reason for the clothes and that. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. So, I, I skipped past it really fast. I skipped. Skipped, skipped. No, yeah. no. It's, can we talk about how, like, not just the themes, just the tone of this book seems to shift so often between very serious and very humorous. And I feel like it makes the serious moments feel unearned. Like, we have really funny panels, like in Volume 4, where um all the Shadow Wolves show up, and Ty is just like, the fuck you want? And it's like, the it's the funniest moment in that whole volume. But then two volumes later, we have this happen. And it's, this book doesn't know what it wants to be. And I don't know what it wanted to be either. Because by the end, I'm just like, 
both of these ideas were very strong. One of them I hated, one of them I kind of liked. And I don't know how to feel about it because I don't know which one you were going for. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a good way to sum it up. So I feel like it's it's so hard because we've been so hard on this. This might be the like hardest book we've ever been on on the show, but I feel like it's it's deserved and it's a book that a lot of people love. So many people. I was have, I was looking forward to reading it. Right. People, so people I respect, people I like, love this book. Mm-hmm. Good friends are gung ho about this book, and it feels bad. I some one of them actually asked me, "It's like should I feel bad for liking this book?" No, if if, if it works for you, it works for you. You know that's the subjective nature of this just because a lot of the scenes hit us a certain way if they don't hit you the same way it doesn't mean you read it the wrong way it just means that fortunately you were able to see it from a different perspective than us and just because we think that things don't land or weren't handled properly doesn't mean that that's the objective truth and that's the one thing i want to say on that before we get onto anything else i agree that's a good note to have with this whole podcast if you disagree with us and what we have to say about books you're allowed you have allowed. an opinion. Have a different You're opinion than us. And um, we would love to hear about it. We would love to hear why this worked. Rip Dallas to shreds on Twitter. Just yeah. do it. Just Dallas. I'm, I'm always in the mood to turn around on a book. I I want to like things, you know? Like it's it's not fun not to like things. If someone can like give me a valid like look at this book that would turn my entire perspective on it around, I welcome that. I would embrace that. Cause I think it'd be a challenge, and I actually want to see that that happen. That would be really interesting to me. I agree. And I also, like, I'm not opposed to books dealing with heavy themes. I just think Anne kind of hit it right on the head where this book doesn't know where to sit with its themes. It wants to be a fun fantasy story. It wants to be bright. And then, like, with the flip of a page, it'll just be in the gutter you know and and it just to me it feels very clear who it's violent and mean towards over Mm -hmm. and over and over again Mm -hmm. and that's that's the hardest part for me really is that like like what comes to mind is Cy Spurrier's run on Hellblazer that's a pretty mean book but it's mean to everybody Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so it doesn't rub me wrong this way one of my favorite books ever is Preacher and that's a pretty vile book. I just... This book felt like it punched down a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm i never okay with punching down in fiction. Um, yeah. So you want to take a look back, and I know you'll want to, because the moment I say it, you're going to start smiling. Let's take a look back at From Hell for a second, which is definitely a book that along these same lines kind of brings in incredible, grotesque, graphic violence against a group of people who are in the real world very much you know suffering from things like this so much violence against women happens in from hell but the overall theme of the book leaves it at a place where these moments make sense in the context of the story they're not there for the visceral nature of it it's not there for shock value it's there to play into this theme which we talked about in that episode which if you haven't listened to you should definitely check out and hear what we have to say about from hell and it ends, surprisingly enough, on a high note for the people who are being victimized in the story. It ends with the bad guy losing. This, people are victimized in it, and they don't win. That's that's the problem here. The person who wins is the person who wasn't victimized personally by the story. 
Ty comes out of this basically unscathed. The only thing he lost was his dad, and he figured out how to get over that loss. And none of the other characters got that same resolution. That's why I think it doesn't work. I agree. Do we want to ask each other some questions and then move yes. into listener questions? Yes, we do. I want to act, ask um, Lexi, because she's the only one here that's watched the show. Oh. And the, sh- <laughs> and the show is getting a season two. So if you could, ch- and assuming they follow the comic and they keep going, they what's... Sorry. What what's the one thing from the comic you want to see in the next season of the show and what's the one thing you hope they get better on as the show goes forward? See, the show is an interesting creature on its mm-hmm. own. It's like that they're trying to cover up all of the terrible things that happened in the comic if that makes sense, mm-hmm. but they're like taking away the like, how how am I trying to say this? Like, I feel like some some of the things in the comic are important that they happen. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the show is very like, we're gonna tiptoe around all of these terrible topics that are that do exist, but we're just not gonna have any of our characters have any defining factors about them. Mm-hmm. It's like very I don't want to say half-assed because I mean it's a good show but like it's definitely not lock and key mm-hmm. like you have to go into watching that show not expecting it to be like the comic if that got it because I remember watching it I was like is this the same thing like it's okay I mean it's fine but it's definitely I didn't I didn't like it like I liked the beginning of the comics that we were reading it's not mm-hmm. the same but maybe that's a good thing Maybe maybe, maybe they're something. trying to build something good there. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I feel like everyone should form their own opinion about the show. I didn't finish it. I only watched like three episodes and I was like, meh. Okay. So for the next, if they could bring in one of those things in the comics, which would you definitely want to see happen? I feel like, because what I did watch, like they had, they had an experience with one of the keys and I feel like it was just so... Um, like, it wasn't very whimsical, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, the key kind of se- felt aggressive, which I know some of them are, but I would say majority of the keys are pretty fun in their ideas and, like, the things that they can be used for. And so I feel like they should make it, like, like those whimsical things that we like, you know? How, like, with those panels where we're like, we want to know what's going on with the teddy bear army, you know? Like, that sounds fun. Like, just let it mm-hmm. be fun. You don't need to make it depressing. Moral of the story. Bring more fun. I like it. Yeah. All right. Ms. Lexi, do you have a question for me? <gasps> mm, okay. Out of the entire full run, which specific issue was your favorite? Not volume, but like a little storyline of its own. Which one was your favorite out of the whole thing? I think I have to agree with the consensus that the Bode-centric Sparrow issue was my mm-hmm. favorite. Uh, it seemed to be the one that had the most consistent theme and a story that told, uh, like told that theme. You know what I mean? With mm-hmm. like Bode learning why it's important to be a part of the Sparrow pack. I don't, I don't know what a group of a flock, I guess, the Sparrow flock. Um, and then like making friends at the end. I thought that was really sweet. 
Uh, yeah, that was, that was my favorite issue. Of it was a good one. It was cute. It was. I also think it was the most like tonally consistent. Oh yeah. I feel like mm-hmm. a lot of issues, there were parts that I liked a lot. And then there was like a third of it that I didn't really like. Like there was always like an A and B thing going on. And I rarely liked one half of what was happening. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yes. Um, Anne. Yes. What do you think that this book did the very best? Oh, the I think the thing this book did the very best was definitely Tyler's arc. We talked about it before. He's the one character who is very fleshed out. And I can track his growth from the beginning to the end very clearly on a one of those um, <laughs> character arc diagrams. I could map out his whole thing. His first act turn, second act turn, everything. He was handled perfectly, I think. And that's why I think everything else stands out so well, because he's treated so well, all the other characters are not, and it just conflicts. But everything that happens with him, great. I if the story was just focused on him, it would have been it would have been a little better, I think, because at least then they would throw away the um pretense that any of the other characters mattered. I mean, respectfully, I think riding off on your hog to a Nickelback song <laughs> while your dead girlfriend gropes you in her that underpants. was the is... most cursed thing to wake up to this morning. I swear to God. I honestly... Did you have to look up those lyrics? Please no. let me know. No, from my I, head. I hate that. From my head. I hate that. <laughs> I texted yeah. Anne this morning the picture of Tyler on the hog with... Um, the lyrics from Nickelback's Rockstar. Oh, hell. It just like text it out line by line because that's what that picture made me think of. And I had to share it with some other cursed human being. <sighs> um, Thank you for that. You're welcome. Cursed. With that, should we move into listener questions? Yes, absolutely. All right. Glenn Machette writes and says dear alexis podcast oh spoilers <laughs> no, he's right it's so true king so true <laughs> i adore the indication at the end that dutch was corrupted by the keys rather than being evil in themselves i like things like this like how in christine annie is corrupted by the car and how in lord of the rings the one ring can corrupt people over long periods can you guys think of any similar examples from comics, TV, movies, novels, etc.? I mean, first off, shout out to Lord of the Rings. Uh, respectfully, uh, that book is bussin'. Oh, <laughs> what in the hell? What? What the what? hell did you just say? A controversial opinion. I know. I know. I've heard bussin' before. I've never heard rice in a bucket before. Hey, just just to be fair, just saying. I'm just saying. Yeah, so anyway, there she was with her bucket of rice. Making fun of me and what I have to say. Hmm. Uh, sheesh. Hmm. Sheesh. Sheesh. It's a. I feel like it's a fairly common trope we've seen before. We just. I hate that we keep going back to Harry Potter, but in Harry Potter, the Horcruxes have that effect on people, where it's just something that's so evil that it corrupts you just by being close to you. It's. Can you think of anywhere else it's happening? Because I feel like it happens all the time, but the only thing I can think of right now is Harry Potter, exactly. and I need that to change. <laughs> the thing that came up for me was Parallax with Hal Jordan. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. 
all that noise that went on. I love Lexi's face. Like, yes, parallax, that mm. very yep. popular thing I that I know what that is. So true, bestie, parallax. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no idea. Um, it's curious though, because I don't think this acts the same way. Because I feel like a lot of times we see those corruption things making people purely evil. The way it's described in this book, though, is it takes the evil parts of you and amplifies them. So I think it was the evil parts of Dutch that did these things. They're just unable to be inhibited by anything else. And I think that description it gives makes it slightly different and slightly more terrifying. Cause it's like intrusive thoughts if they were all you did. That's what that's what Dutch feels like to me as a character. True, true. I feel like I've got some in the back of my head. I just cannot, for the life of me, think of yeah. think of examples. Glenn, we have failed you, but um, parallax and uh, horcruxes. There you go. And Lord of the Rings. Boom. And three. Boom. Bam. <laughs> and he did mention Lord of the Rings in his question. So Who cares? it's double okay. points. Double free. points for us. Uh, yeah. Again. I don't know if you noticed this, Glenn, but the car in Christine, also a good example. Also does that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you knew that, though. <laughs> All right. Jaden Vien says, lock and key question. This question involves a key that was introduced in Hell and Gone number two. We didn't read that, Jaden, so we're shooting from the hip here. Mm -hmm. It is the key that goes into the sword and magically renders it so sharp that it can cut through anything. My question is, what is the official name of this new key? It was never revealed in the comic. So we're going to make up what we think the name should mm -hmm. be. Uh, I'm going to well, call it the Moy. I'm going to call it the Moyle key. Moving on. The Wait, of the key that Tyler made? No, there's like a separate side series we didn't read. Oh. Where there's mm -hmm. a key that makes a sword so sharp it can cut anything. Oh. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to come up with a name for what that key would be. Mine is the Moyle key. The pokey stabby key. The pokey I'm gonna call key. it. I'm gonna call it the easy peasy lemon squeezy. Ah. <laughs> Frankly, let's let's put all those together and say <laughs> the Moyle says easy peasy lemon squeezy pokey stabby. That is the name of the key. Beautiful. Canonically. Yeah, <laughs> put right. that on the wiki right now inside us. I dare I you. Won't, you won't. You're too soft. All right. Uh, Joshua Gomez writes in and says, I apologize up front for the rant. I've had a lot of thoughts about lock and key over the years. I'll restrict mm -hmm. myself to what I think is the ultimate subversion in the story. The too long don't read of it is, it was never a story of whimsical magic that only kids can interact with because innocence. Uh, the keys are all made from, made of literal Lovecraftian horrors from the beyond that want to corrupt and destroy. The kids are keeping the world safe from the keys, not the other way around. But in true Lovecraftian fashion, even they can't touch that evil and come through unscathed. I will explain what I mean below, but feel free to keep it at that. And for all I know, it's all redundant or discordant to your thoughts. Love the pod and can't wait to hear what you all have to say about what you thought of the conclusion. I'm sorry, Joshua. I don't think we were very nice to this book. Say, yeah, here's the thing about that is the kids in this book, they're the ones who don't pay for the the evil of the keys it's literally everyone else these these kids come out unscathed literally unscathed at the end of the story but everyone around them just drops like fucking flies so that's the curious bit i feel like the magic did protect them in that way it was cruel as hell to everyone else but 
I feel like yours makes more sense for what should have happened, but that's not the story that I believe we just read, in my my opinion. I agree. Um, continuing what Joshua has dubbed their rant. Uh, oh, in, the okay. early, in the early volumes, the impression I got about the choice of protagonists was an old-school type kids' entertainment, though with adult violence, where the kid protagonists have to save the day because adults are clueless and seemingly neglectfully absent. But to me, what the revelations at the end say is that it was always more than that. The keys are literally made of eldritch Lovecrafting horrors. They are monkey's paws that will ruin you and everything you love. As embodied in Dodge, they actively want to desecrate and destroy. Kids at play can resist the effect that effect. They can use the keys and keep their power safe while also protecting the outside world from the evil inside them. But we're not dealing with mundane human cruelty or greed and never were. It was always a terror from beyond that requires kids' sacrifice to save us, which is both beautiful and terrible. I kind of really love it, but can't help but grimace. Obviously, there's a lot of other things going on in the story at the same time, but I feel this sums up that aspect of the series and what's the intent, so there's that. Uh, I don't know that I necessarily agree, but mm -hmm. it is an interesting perspective to bring to the book. Yeah. See, um, I'm, I'm still in the same place where it's like, they didn't have to sacrifice anything. It's the people around them that did. And from their perspective, I would, it feels like correct, but they weren't the keepers of the keys. They were just, they were bystanders who just happened to know the lock kids. And that's why the terrible things happened to them. And the end of the story doesn't give me the impression that their loss really weighs on these characters at all. Because, you know, Ty's just happy riding off with his, ghost nickelback girlfriend um kinsey goes to the funeral for um quentin choir and sings some anarchy in the uk and that's you know wipe wash your hands of that that's over their lasting impacts are non-existent which is why i feel like i can't agree well, it's even crazy because I know there's a part that we didn't talk, we like touched a little bit, um, but the kid that is murdered by Spooky Bodie, mm -hmm. his mother literally says, I wish my son never had met any of you because look what's happening since you came here. Mm -hmm. And that's such a good point. Like yeah. shit is going down because these kids exist. Just their <laughs> like reign of terror that's going mm -hmm. on and that they don't give a shit about is affecting everyone in their lives except them, which like, I know that that was just like a brush off scene, but I was like, this is real. She's got a point. This woman is on to something here. And her child just got hit by a bus because of this. So it's true. It's true. They're a menace to society. They should they all be thrown in be jail. In Bodhi too. Bodhi should Especially go to prison. <laughs> I, also, I also feel like this book falls into the milieu of people like the aesthetics of Lovecraft, but don't understand where the horror comes from. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I, I was never scared by the concept of this book. No. And I think that's at the heart of Eldritch Horror, yeah. is being wigged out by something that is bigger than yourself. Yeah. And this book did not do that effectively for me. I didn't, I didn't see it that way. I saw it very much wearing the coat and top half, uh, top hat of a Lovecraft story, but it kind of just felt like a mean-spirited Harry Potter on the inside. Mm -hmm. I know, just me again. Just you. I'm glad you liked it. Wish I liked it. Yeah, I like pieces. I'm not sad I read this. 
You know, there was never a point where I was like, oh, I can't believe I wasted my time. Like, yeah. I'm going to be honest. I was a little bitter because I went through all three volumes in the same day. I was a little bitter on Friday. I was like, oh, my God, I need a break. <laughs> I need to go and lie down. I think it helped me to read one volume each day, Friday, Saturday, and then this morning. Yeah, that was the smart thing to do. I didn't have the time yesterday, so I had to on Friday. Yeah, I read them all this morning, and you can do it. Can do to it. be fair, I did read all of volume four a month ago, so I mm-hmm. skimmed that one today. Right. Mm-hmm. Just to remember what happened. Cheater. It all blurred together. Dang, bestie. That's what I did with this whole series. Uh, Hi, Comics Collective people, says Junie Mauricio. Hope you're all doing well. So I didn't really have a question about Lock and Key. What I want to ask is if you'll ever, you have ever thought about covering web comics or webtoons for the show. There's some I think you would vibe with. Atomic Robo, Muted, Suitor Armor, Lavender Jack, just to name a mm-hmm. few. But I also do understand the format of some may not work for a show since it can be a lot to cover. Either way, love you all. Keep being awesome. Junie. Ooh. Sorry. <laughs> Junie, I do read those. Um, that is my own thing that I do. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of Lore of Olympus, but I've been following that for two fucking years. <laughs> I was going to make the joke. Like, can we can't cover Lore of Olympus? <laughs> Pistol whipped to that. That's all oh, I'm gonna say. Say yeah, I would be down for reading any webtoons. I there's a lot to cover, but I, they're really easy to read. They're really quick reads. Like you could go through so many strips in a day. It's it should be a piece of cake if we wanted to ever cover one of those. And actually, I think we will because we're covering on um on a sunbeam in February. We're also and that covering... was a webcomic. We're also covering Friday by Ed Brubaker, which was a webcomic okay. in like three weeks. So, so look at us. We're... Look at Hardy ahead of it, Junie. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I will say, though, I know that Anne teased about Lore of Olympus, but it's a book now. It's a book. Is it? They made it a book. Yep. I've been seeing the merch everywhere in Hot Topic, yeah. so like I figured oh, it was only a matter Topic? of time. Oh, yeah, Hot Topic, Box Lunch, all my favorite nerd stores. Yeah, they got, it's everywhere. That's funny. It's yeah, infiltrated the pop culture. I remember seeing it my junior year of high school, which was three years ago. It's been around that long? Yes, and I started wow. reading it then, and I download the stupid Webtoon app just to read it. That's the only thing I do. I got Once the Webtoon every app. Every Saturday. <laughs> just for the um, Batman Family Adventures. Uh, because like someone has to be respecting Cassandra Kane out here. Someone has to. Honestly, so true. Uh, I read Tower of God on there once with a bunch of my friends, and that was pretty good. Uh, I think it's easier for my old man brain. Again, we're recording this on Skype. I am one million years old. Uh, <laughs> it is easiest for me when webtoons get published into like actual tangible books that I then have like a finite amount to read i don't know i'm old as hell but we know this truly, you are definitely the oldest one in this chat 100%. right now a hundred percent you cannot prove otherwise spiritually spiritually so old decrepit even <laughs> all right those are our listener questions for the week Aww. so we Aww. appreciate the questions everybody again Make sure, if you ever want to be read off on the show, it's a, we don't do a lot of cutting of questions. So you will be on this show if you write us in. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, should we go to the wrap up, everybody? Absolutely. We shall. If you guys like the show and want to hear more from us throughout the week, please go follow our Twitter account at CMX Collective, or you can find each of us at our personals at Dallas underscore comics, at Ann Comics, and at Lexi Taylor underscore one, two, three. And if you tweet me a good username that involves comics, please do that because I feel like a dweeb. I feel so bad that Lexicon was taken. I know. It made me sad. If you enjoyed the show and want to show your support, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. But probably Apple Podcasts. That's that's the one that affects the most things. And give us a five-star <laughs> review, and we will read it off on the show, like the wonderful Superior Dan, who wrote in, gave us five stars. Thank you, Superior Dan. Love you are Dan. Superior. They said, I first found out about this podcast very recently through the host's Twitter accounts. Poor, poor soul. <laughs> um, seeing as how they've made my experience on there a lot better, I suppose giving this podcast a shot wouldn't hurt. And I've been loving it ever since. Anne, Dallas, and Lexi are just great to listen to. They're incredible in-depth looks at stories that I was familiar with or haven't even heard of until this podcast honestly give me newfound appreciation for comic books. Their banter, I guess you could call it that. I'd call it cyberbullying, Dan. Honestly, I would call it cyberbullying. Uh, has gotten me to laugh many times and quite loudly. I honestly wasn't even big on podcasts before either, but this is just very easy to put on and listen to, either in the background or paying close attention. I honestly can't get enough of this podcast now, and I'm so glad I found it. This podcast and its hosts revived my love of comic books, so thanks. P.S. Mm -hmm. I hope you guys cover something either Cassandra Kane or Spider-Man related in the future. <laughs> if you haven't already, that would be really oh, cool. Oh, no. Don't give we, him an excuse. No. We have covered a lot of that, Dan. If you go back in the feed, there is an episode where Alexis and I talk about Cassandra Kane. Uh, and then there are two Spider-Man episodes. And they're both pretty darn beefy. I'm not going to lie. I made Alexis read two-thirds of the Stan Lee Spider-Man run and watch every Spider-Man movie with me yep. for my birthday. And she said yes. I didn't have so, a choice. I didn't know I yeah, could say no. That was, that was your fault. I'm sorry, Lexi. She did that. And then we read Roger Stern's Spider-Man as well. Mm -hmm. I love Spidey. I, it'll probably be a while before we get to Peter Parker again. I am very curious about Saladin Ahmed's Miles Morales run. I think mm -hmm. that would be fun to cover. Just... I could do a I could do a Miles, just not freaking yeah. Peter Parker. <laughs> Anything from Miles? Yeah, Miles just, is acceptable. Just not Penis Parker. Nope. Or uh, for Doug, Pingus Parker. Pingus. <laughs> is that what that means? Yeah. Yeah. So, I didn't get that on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, that's Pingus is. I was talking with Doug about how phallic from hell is, and so he sent me this image of Jack the Ripper saying. Pingus. <laughs> okay. And it's lived in my mind rent-free since. Okay, that makes sense. Oh. It's, it's my turn. I need to follow the script. I wrote a script and I can't even follow the end of it. <laughs> and finally, feel free to email us with your questions or comments for the show at the comics the comics collective at gmail.com. Edit that out, Dallas. Edit out the fact that I can't speak English. No. This is why I'm learning ASL, because I can't speak with my face. Genius. Genius. 
All right. And we will see you guys all next week for our episode, The Uncanny X-Men. Is that correct? Oh, Klaus hasn't been released yet. Oh, yeah. Well, then our schedule is wrong. You need to fix that. You're fired. Fix it. Fix it. Mm. Klaus is next week. Sweet. Klaus, Christmas. It's because he didn't put it on the schedule. Oh, my gosh, Dallas. I actually took it off schedule because we already recorded it, you punk ass. (laughs) Idiots. You're messing us up. I look too... every single time when I say that line. You mess me up. <laughs> you tell quit. me December 1st doesn't exist. I believe you. That That's how dumb and I am. And that will be the day after my birthday, everyone. <gasps> yes. Mm-hmm. Christmas and birthday at the same time. Yep. So next week, Klaus. So make sure to read up on that and enjoy the episode. And happy holidays, everybody. Happy holidays. True. Thanksgiving. It's going to be fun. Bye. Bye. Bye.